Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Christians talk about evangelization, they do so along the lines of the historical King Herod, who twisted biblical circumcision into a trademark of the temple cult, a stigma with which to brand people living outside of Judea as Jews in order to extract wealth from them in the name of Scripture, you guessed it, to build his temple. But Matthew ends outside of Jerusalem in the green pastures of Galilee with the destruction of Herod's enterprise under the blue skies of the heavens. In Matthew's proposition, the families of the earth roam together, guided by the shepherd's voice in the wilderness, under the broad and generous expanse of the heavens. And Jesus opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 427 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Recently at St. Elizabeth, the question came up once again about forming a group within our community. And our challenge has always been, number one, that the Eucharistic table at the church is never divided. We have one table and one cup. There are no groups. We are one fellowship. But of greater importance with respect to the gospel is that we are equalized with the peoples of the neighborhood in which we reside. It's of the utmost importance throughout Scripture that Israel is equalized with the nations. Father Paul talks about this at great length in the rise of Scripture, especially in his dealing with the all-critical Hebrew term midbar, which is functionally interconnected, literally interconnected with the debar. It's the same consonantal root. This idea that in the region of the Syrian wilderness, we are all equalized with our neighbors. So even this expression, love your neighbor, is not a philosophical expression. It literally means who is next to you in the wilderness? Who is in closest proximity to you? Now, when we deal with this question of the nations in Matthew, 
here at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we don't think about the term scripturally. We impose, maybe we impose contemporary ideas of the nation-state on the term. We impose our flags and our banners on our usage of the term. We impose this hideous, hideous anti-scriptural love affair with our own identity on the term. And so when we talk about all nations, what we really mean is, how can we colonize them in the name of our God? But that's not what Scripture is all about. So I want to say that coming right out of the gate, that what Matthew is preaching with respect to baptism has nothing to do with the flag that we want to hang over the neighborhoods in which we reside. This flag is really the main problem because it erases everyone's identity, which is correct according to the gospel, but it's not so that the gospel would increase, but that our name might increase, not that God's name would increase. This is always the problem. We want our name to increase. And one thing that's always made me sad about the Orthodox Church, we talk about converts, but the converts we're talking about are 99% Protestant, and there's a few Catholics sprinkled in there. They're all people who knew the gospel. They're all people who knew scripture. We just convinced them with history and liturgy that they should come on Sunday mornings to our place rather than be at the place where their parents are. That's what we did. And it always made me sad that we don't have people who know nothing. We're not preaching to the atheists who have literally never heard the gospel. I mean, do we have the Orthodox preaching in downtown San Francisco and Seattle? No, they shun them. They would rather go to downtown Dallas or downtown Charlotte or something like this where they know that they've got Bible-believing people all around them. Well, this is simply draping a flag over people who already knew the gospel. This is vanity. In teaching the gospel, there is a necessity to teach everyone. And I like, Father, that you brought up this filter that we use of the nation-state that does cloud this, I think, because in the former Soviet Union, they had a system that I think makes sense, but we don't think of it nowadays. You had your citizenship, Soviet Union. You had a Soviet passport. But in your Soviet passport, you had a line there for nationality. And that nationality is your ethnos. So you might be Greek, you might be German, you might be Ukrainian, you might be Jewish, which was considered an ethnicity at that time. Ethnicity and nation are the same thing. It's the ethnos you belong to. But you're still a citizen of the Soviet Union. You can be Jew, you can be Greek as your nationality, but as far as your citizenship, you belong to the kingdom. And that's what it was for the Romans. You had Roman citizenship. It didn't make you any less Persian. It didn't make you any less Alexandrian or Arab or whatever. You were a Roman citizen. And we have a hard time bringing these two ideas together because of the nation state. That's why we have these horrible ethnic cleansing. You didn't have to have ethnic cleansing in an empire because an empire assumed that you have many nations in it. 
So people moved freely. That's why the Ottoman Empire allowed people to move very freely throughout the empire because it didn't matter what nationality you were. It just mattered what your citizenship was. In the kingdom, which is truly the point of Matthew, we've been saying it since chapter 1, the Lord's kingdom, the kingdom of the heavens, is the one that is being established. And now that the word has come out of the land, has been birthed by the earth, we have the establishment of the kingdom in which there are many nations. But every nation and every member of every nation must bow their knee to the kingdom and to the one in this kingdom who holds all power. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. There are three things I'd like to say about this verse. First of all, I want to remind everyone of the new name I have given the Gospel of Matthew. (laughs) Who moved the cheese? There it is. Matthew moved the cheese. Where is Jesus? Oh my goodness, here he is in Galilee. Number two, remember that beautiful, beautiful teaching about having the faith of this little mustard seed, and if you do, you can move mountains? Well, here's the mountain. It's the mountain of Sinai, now moved out among the nations. And why are there 11 disciples? Because now the household of God, now the community of the tribes of God's people, has an open chair for the nations to join. There's an open seat, if you will, in the United Nations, and it's been extended. Everybody is equalized. And the only one that stands out is the one carrying the scroll of God's instruction. Beautiful. And just like the regulations within the scroll of the Pentateuch were given to the people dwelling in the land of Canaan, the regulations of the gospel in the right hand of Jesus Christ are given to all those dwelling together here in Galilee. It's the same mechanism. That's why the gospel is the Torah to the Gentiles. Fantastic. Right there. Just as he said, and this word designated, tasso, means just as he arranged. (laughs) Beautiful. It's beautiful, Richard. For the disciples to take a trip from Jerusalem to the mountain in Galilee, that's not an easy trip. I mean, you don't just uh, hop on a bus and get there in 30 minutes. I mean, this is a long trip. These people are poor. They're going by foot. Okay, how long does it take to walk from Jerusalem? Not just to Galilee, but you got to go through mountains to get there. So you see the strangeness here. Why would Jesus make them leave Jerusalem and schlep all the way to the mountains in Galilee? I mean, that's crazy. Can you just do it here? The second thing is that God in Deuteronomy keeps talking about the place that he will designate, the place that he will designate, and it's always understood as Jerusalem. The disciples were in Jerusalem, and the Marys were in Jerusalem, and they went outside Jerusalem, and lo and behold, it was empty. 
Just like Jerusalem and Ezekiel, God took off. There's no more God in Jerusalem. He is gone, like you said. It leaves a vacuum. It leaves a space at the table. So who's going to come in? Well, first comes the one who has the power, and this is Jesus. We'll see this in a moment. And it leaves a spot at the table for all nations to come and to sit and break bread at a single table of fellowship. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Hits me like a ton of bricks. After hearing Matthew these past months, that seeing is not believing. Those who are interested in seeing were staring into the abyss of an empty tomb. There was nothing to see. And now in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were still doubtful, because seeing is not believing. It's not going to help, even if you raise someone from the dead. It's not going to help. Nothing's going to help if they didn't hear Moses and the prophets, even if you raise someone from the dead. And the funny thing is, in my daily life, when I'm trying to convince people of something obvious, that is the axiom that comes to mind most often, Rich. Even if you raise someone from the dead, people who don't want to understand just won't understand. Even when they understand, they won't understand because they don't want to. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter. People are what they are. So it has nothing to do with proving or convincing. The Midbar is preached from the wilderness. <laughs> it's inherent to the actual term, which we'll talk about soon. The Lord is the one who speaks from the wilderness. When he speaks, there's life. There's no choice in the matter because his speech provides life. You don't decide whether you agree with it or not. The idea that you can decide whether to agree or not is incompatible with the reality of the flock of a shepherd. Now, you might say, well, Father Mark, let's talk about that. What does it really mean? But then you're already engaging in something theoretical. But a flock of sheep in the wilderness <laughs> was not made by a human being. It wasn't engineered. It's part of the landscape, and it works a certain way. The relationship of the human being to that flock is a natural one. We make noises, and the other creatures of which we are one respond to those noises. That's the reference for God speaking to us from the wilderness. So we either listen to his speech and live, or we don't listen and we die. 
So doubt, don't doubt, seeing, not seeing, what are we talking about? What do you think you're looking for and why do we care? Yeah, the seeing is not believing is precisely the point all throughout Matthew, which is, are they listening to the word or are they looking for the miracles? And here we have these disciples who went all this way, all the way into a mountain in Galilee. They worshiped him, yet still doubted. They still did not have faith in him. I mean, what can you do at this point? He rose from the dead. The word went out. Now, these disciples never saw the empty tomb. They never saw these things actually happened. So they doubted perhaps the testimony of the Marys. But they didn't know what to believe. They even saw Jesus there. Did they think he didn't really die? I mean, what could they doubt at this point? Maybe simply the point that Jesus is as powerful as some are saying he is. He's still the crucified one, even though he rose from the dead. So yes, he came back to life, but he's also dead. He also was crucified and humiliated and has a very bad name. What's there to believe in at this point? Even if he did raise from the dead, so what? Is he more substantial than a ghost? We'll see. Maybe a really smart ghost with a good teaching? Like Samuel when Saul dug his soul up from Hades to ask him some questions? Is that what we're talking about here? Is Jesus just going to be mad at them like Samuel was mad at Saul for waking him up from the dead? They don't know what kind of power this crucified one is. Because at this point, we Christians like to forget that he is still the crucified one. Just like we forget that today Jesus is still the crucified one. Being the crucified one, how do you put your trust in him even if he does rise from the dead? He's still cursed and crucified. That's the problem. You can't escape his ignominy that he is humiliated. That he has no good name. That he has not saved face. He is completely shame personified. Okay, you can bend down and worship. Okay, great. But are you going to believe in anything at this point? This is the problem the disciples are running into. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is the famous first fruits of the kingdom. It is not the end times yet, but it is the first indication of the coming judgment. And it connects very clearly 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he, and the he here in 1 Corinthians is God the Father, because again, it is the Father who has everything under control. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is clear that this excludes the Father who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. This is what we have been 
obnoxiously and persistently trying to hammer into our listening audience these past months that Jesus ultimately is equalized with everybody so that all of us would be equalized with each other so that no one would stand out but God the Father. That is how Scripture conquered the Romans. That is the fulfillment of Isaiah. Everything is level. The valleys are lifted up and the mountains are flattened so that only one ego stands out on the surface of the earth. That is where we are headed here at the end of Matthew. Now, the reason I mentioned that this is the first fruits of the coming resurrection is because anybody with half a brain knows when you put down the Gospel of Matthew and you look up, there's still a U.S. Congress, there's still a British Parliament, there's still a Ukrainian government, there's still a Russian government, there's still an Israeli government, and the princes and the sons of men are still wreaking havoc upon the planet. Which means that this kingdom, in literal terms, has not been ushered in. But at the end of Matthew, it has been ushered in in the minds, meaning the hearts, of those who have been circumcised in the foreskin of their heart by Matthew's teaching which means that even if you're living under a Ukrainian government or a Russian government or an American government, you can live under the hope of the coming kingdom of the government of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In which case, even though this is the first fruit of that coming kingdom, for you, the kingdom is already at hand and you can live as Paul says in Philippians, and conduct yourself, politevma, as one who pertains to that kingdom. And then you are free, even if you are in chains and in prison. And your purpose is for the gospel to go out, which is what happens at the end of the gospel of Matthew. We are living it here in the story now. And in this sense, Jesus has already won. And that is why all authority has been given to him by his Father in heaven and on earth. It is his Father who created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is having to respond to the very doubt that you raise. How can God be so powerful when his representative has been crucified and humiliated and disappeared, and there's some rumor of some specter up in the mountains out in the boondocks, and this is our hope? Our hope is supposed to be some mountain in the boondocks? Not really very encouraging. The response is that all power is given to me. Exousia, so authority is given to Jesus. The ability to stand out was given to him in the name of his Father. This is his response to those who would doubt. 
all authority has been given to me. Jesus is going to do what we said before. He preached up until he died and there was literally no breath left in his lungs. He disappeared for a little bit, came back, and guess what he started doing? He started teaching again, and he started doing exactly what he was doing before. He was continuing to be a witness to the word that his father spoke. Now, this is an odd statement to just say, all power has given to me. I mean, I would love to just walk into work sometime and say, by the way, all power has been given to me. Now you're going to have to do what I say. And people are going to say, baloney, who says you have all this authority? Well, my boss says, oh, really? Your boss really did? Do you have an email or something that says this? Because it would really make a big difference to us if your boss said this, and this isn't just coming out of thin air and, you know, this morning. So I need some kind of testimony from my boss that I actually do have this authority, this exousia. Without that, then I'm full of baloney. Now, we have to be sure that Jesus isn't full of baloney, but we see that he's going to keep speaking, and this is what he says in order to provide a testimony to this claim that he's making. But it's the claim he's been making all along, which is that he's simply here to present the word of the Lord. So if he continues to present the word of the Lord, then that is his exousia. The person who proclaims the good tidings, who proclaims the gospel, who proclaims the word of the Lord, all power, all exousia comes from that word. That's the point. And we'll see how this unfolds in the final verses here. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we did a bit of a setup for verse 19 at the start of the episode. We tend to co-opt the command to baptize the nations and twist it into something that Matthew condemns as proselytization, which really is another version of colonization. And if you listen carefully to the way people talk about what they call evangelization, what they really mean is teaching people to be like us, which is another version of exporting your culture and asking people to wave your banners. It's the same old thing just a different coat of paint. That is not what Jesus is commanding in verse 19. What he is commanding us to do in verse 19 is to go out among all the families of the earth. I'm borrowing from Genesis now and the terminology of Genesis. Go out among all the flocks of the earth because you're just one of the creepy, crawly creatures of the earth. (laughs) among the other earth mammals and the vegetation. Just go be among the other peoples of the earth and love them. And if anyone is interested in the proposition of my instruction, share it with them. But don't ask them to wear the same hat you wear or to sing the same music you sing or to eat the same foods that you eat. Don't. Do not. Don't make them speak your language. Instead, learn their language, 
learn to appreciate their foods. When you sit at table, if one of you is not allowed to eat bacon, then make sure there's food at the table that they can eat. But if others can eat bacon, they should be welcome to eat bacon and you should sit together. That is the meaning of Galatians. Some abstain from bacon and some don't. What's the big deal? Literally, to each his own except with respect to the love of neighbor. And that is a dangerous teaching because that emasculates exceptionalism. And we like to talk about American exceptionalism, but let's be honest, everybody is an exceptionalist. Come on. Everybody believes that their way of living, their way of purchasing, their way of worshiping, their flag, their whatever, everybody believes that their way is the exceptionally correct way. And that's why Paul says, baloney, stay as you are. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you love the person next to you, no matter what they are. And that's what baptism of the nations is all about, Rich. Yeah, so many times I've heard this interpreted, teach all nations means teach everybody. Bring the gospel to every single human being and baptize every single human being. That's how many people interpret this. The way I've always interpreted this, ever since I heard Father Paul teach about Galatians, was that this means teach all nations, do not exclude any nations. Because in Galatians, the point was that you had to be circumcised if you were a Gentile before you could be baptized. You don't have to prove you're one of us before we baptize you. Do not exclude any nation because they don't do things right or they don't do things in your way. You don't have to baptize them into the Greek language. I always love the story of St. Herman, who set up a monastery in Alaska and was meeting these native people who didn't know Russian. And so he translated his prayers into the native language. He translated the gospel into the native languages, bits and pieces, as he was able, into whatever language people were speaking. And then he just taught them in their language. If they wanted to do more with him, they did more with him. If they wanted to be baptized, he would baptize them. That's it. His goal wasn't to go there to baptize every one of the Alaskans. But the Americans, when they went into Alaska, they took the natives, kidnapped them, brought them into schools, cut their hair so they looked more civilized, dressed them so they looked more civilized, forced them to speak the civilized language of the Anglo-Saxons, and then become civilized Christians like the Americans. So civilized I use here in air quotes because there's nothing civilized in this other than you're forcing people to be like those of your city before they can enter the kingdom of God. And this is the worst blasphemy against God, that you make them an image of yourself before you allow them to become citizens of the kingdom to which you are not the owner, but simply a member. Actually, St. Herman had to protect the native Alaskans from the Russians also, because the Russians were more interested in extracting wealth from Alaska than they were in the peoples of Alaska. So often when I hear people wanting to save souls, it sounds more like what you're saying, Father, which is that they want to extract souls 
so that they can enrich their own kingdom. Obviously. Teach the nations to observe the things I told you to do already. That's it. The only thing that he says about his exousia, I have all exousia, therefore go teach what I taught, command what I commanded. That's it. He doesn't want to prove a point. He doesn't perform a miracle here, does he? He simply shows up and says, go continue to teach. And I'll be with you till the end of the age through the circumcision of the foreskin of your heart by the words of my instruction. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.